Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is an episode I'm titling Ramblings with Rich Klein 2.0. We did this a week or so ago, had a good time. It's less structured than dueling questions, but it's just Rich and I conversing about the hobby, and we just bat around some different topics. No agenda, but he'll have some things, I'll have some things, and we'll do this again if y'all continue to like it. So we got good feedback from last one. But thanks, sponsors, especially ComC, for providing employment for Rich and keeping him close to the pulse of the hobby. Also, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, and Tops Panini and Upper Deck. If you've got other ideas you'd like for this podcast or for Rich and myself to discuss, send them to me at drjamesbeckett at gmail.com or let Rich know on his various social media platforms. I hope you enjoyed it. Here it is. My next article for Hobby News Daily will lead off with there's a famous meme or a famous commercial. I don't like change. Yet, when you were there in 20-odd years, you ran the publication. In the 17, 19-odd years I was there, it changed immensely at Beckett. And when I went to a trade night at the Beast Sports Cards, which is one of the triple card family of stores that now has one of your corporate sponsors, Mike Stadium Sports Clubs, among their entities. In the group. In the group. The store is a modern store. It is not the type of store... I would have gone to many years ago. Yet, it's the perfect type of store, in my opinion, for today's world. There's like a bar where you can sit and watch four screens of TVs. If you want to break, there are three or four tables to break. There are value boxes on the counter, packs all over the place. There's supplies, there's boxes. It is not set up the way you and I would have set up a store in the 80s and 90s. When one of the things is, we're talking about change. When I started at Beckett, you obviously started before I did, but it was publication-driven, period, end of sentence. By the time we all left, it was internet-driven. How hard was it to make the adjustment from being publication-driven to internet-driven? Change is good because lack of change is withering sometimes. (laughs) You get stagnant. So I didn't want to be stagnant. But there's two kinds of change, I think. There's evolution and revolution. Those were evolutionary, just like what you're saying at the Beast. It's Darwinian almost of the survival of the fittest, the adapt or die. The old-fashioned card shop really needed updating. And our company, when we started, it was simple, and then it got more complicated. But I always thought it was more evolutionary. Maybe taking on grading was a big, giant step. And even to your question, going all in on the internet would have been revolutionary, but I didn't. We dipped our toe in the water and probably went slower than we could have gone because I wanted to make sure we were protecting the mothership, which happens in a lot of business situations. So now you look back and yeah, that was a radical change away from print. But Rich, I think it was more gradual. The only leaders that come in and are comfortable with that are called turnaround leaders. <laughs> they come in and something's wrong and they've got to make lots of big changes because the ship is going down. Our ship wasn't going down. It was sailing fine. But when you look ahead at the stormy seas, you're thinking we better start preparing for the future being a little bit different. We had two people in leadership who were very internet-based. Mark, Mark Harwell and Jeff Amato. Yep. Yet, I think one of the issues was that the profits 
were still coming from the pre-product because we were selling 10,000 copies of the Almanac. And if we're wholesaling them to dealers at 30 apiece, and we were selling out, we had no copies. Half the time, I wouldn't have copies to send anybody for markups for the next year. Yeah. It was a complete sellout. And then some books were retail. And from what I heard, it was costing a fraction of what we were selling the books for. Publishing can be very profitable, obviously. And it's hard to decide you want to cannibalize your profit to go into a new field, meaning the internet. The the promise is that you're going to have lower costs by digitizing everything, and you're going to get a much bigger audience, a lot less friction, but you're going to make less profit per customer. The problem is it can be zero profit per customer because they're not really your customer. They're just sampling or they're able to get it without paying before worrying about a paywall. And if you put up a paywall, it just was awkward back in those days. All the companies that really succeeded, when we look at the Ebays and Google and Yahoo and all those, they really had no business model other than advertising at, at the beginning. I mean, maybe eBay did, but they lost a lot of money, but they made it up in the long run by controlling one segment of the internet. And I just wasn't willing to do that. To go all in digital would have meant losing money. Amazon and Yahoo had us out there and Mark and Jeff were there. They wanted to not buy our company, but they wanted to buy the digital rights to our stuff. And I wasn't willing to break that out. And looking back, they probably would have paid what the company was worth and left the print publications behind. I've made a lot of smart decisions and I'm not sure that was one of them to say no to that. But looking back, I did what I did. In fact, I love print. I love being able to read a book and have a price guide where you can look through. I also like to be able to look things up online. The long tail, the almanacs in particular, as you bring them up, just the paper was getting so thin, the print was getting so small, and it was hard to look up things. But it was more than just the almanacs, Rich. We had a whole series of sizes of price guides, market segmentation, monthly price guides, and stuff like that. So all that was in jeopardy with having either free or cheap data digitally available on the internet. And I always was a big fan, and I know we did this eventually, of basically moving most of the, we would call it the plus. And I was a big fan of the plus because what I was hearing on the ground People wanted prices. No knock on our excellent editorial staff. Yeah. I hate to tell you this, but they really didn't care about what we were writing in the first 24 pages of the magazine. I'm not sure you're getting a, an unbiased sample, but I agree. There's a lot of people. Uh, I think the main feature was the price guide. I will give you that. I, a lot of people like the articles too, but a, a comprehensive, accurate price guide was what we were known for. And it became less comprehensive and frankly, probably less accurate over the years. And I've been gone a long time. You've been gone a long time, but it's Herculean what is required to do that. And not just for any two people, you and I are really hard workers. I used to be good at estimating how much time things would take. And now I do that estimation. It doesn't work. We have so many more sources of information today. More cards and more data to synthesize. Now, some of it can be automated. And that's a good thing, but there's so many exceptions. That's what I say. I think we were really good at using as much of the empirical data, but being able to cull out things that were exceptional in terms of misleading or wrong, or giving more weight to something that looked wrong, but when you looked into it, you think, hey, this is really what's going on. There are people you would think are blowing smoke. 
And if it's public, it's great. But if it's private, you have to know who you're dealing with, which is, I think is what you just said. It's not just that. It's like nobody tries to maliciously trim a card that's a common. So basically, when somebody is self-reporting something and it doesn't appear that they've exaggerated, your level of investigation is related to the sensationalism of the claim. If he said he made a million dollars profit on it, we'd say, okay, let's see how that works. But 5000 you think, okay, that's believable. We could dig into that. People maybe realize this, but the Almanac stuff that we both lovingly worked on, you could not give the same level of scrutiny to every set and every card. Some cards are not worth spending a lot of time with. The same prices last year, let's say. There's just nothing going on. The price guide guys at Beckett now, they have that dilemma. We try to be systematic, but it's almost too big to be systematic now. So if it doesn't look at it just stays the same price. And if you let that go for a few years, you could be pretty far off. And you can't just go in and change the one player that you heard about, because then that makes no sense. You only increase the Jordan when really, implicitly, all of them probably went up if it's a tougher, not as much as the Jordan. You know that the old prices are no longer applicable. I think it depends on the set. And I don't remember if he was in it or not, so I'm going to make this up a little. But if there's a 1986 Mother's Cookies A set with Canseco in it, and he has a 40-40 season, you can leave the Tony Phillips card at the same price if he's in there, or the Mike Moore card or whatever. And Canseco's jumping up, and you don't have to raise the other cards. The one thing you have to do is make sure you know how much the set is now. If you've jumped Canseco from 5 to $20, you better jump the set price up too. And we did have tools to do that. Yeah, I did too. What I'm realizing as you bring this up, because I've never really addressed this, and you'd be a good one to compare notes on, there's a surprising number of smaller sets that are single card driven, like the minor league sets and some of the team issue sets. You know what the set price is based on what the one best card is. And the others are also rants. It's not that they're valueless. You couldn't sell the set. It was missing the the Conseco in 86, let's say. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. You're jumping up the price. There are other sets, especially vintage, <coughs> where if all of a sudden there's a run on mellow mint cards, which is a really tough set. And all of a sudden, a mellow mint set sells for 3x what it's ever sold for before in the same condition it was last year. You can goose up every card in the set. You may want to goose the Hall of Famers up more, but you're going to goose up every card in that set, and rightly, because that is not a one-player-driven set. The challenge we had is that some sets are so thinly traded, you're just not going to get that much data. But as much as possible, we're trying to look at empirical data directly related to those cards or that set. And you can't just say, I only had one sale, I can't use it. Insufficient data. No. The data that we have suggests that set just tripled. And you can't just triple the set price without tripling some recognition that the 30 cards in the set or something have probably gone up as well. And some perhaps more than others. And it's somewhat speculative. But again, we're going to use as much other ancillary data as we can to keep that in bounds as well. I was somewhat numbers driven. And when Griffey, McGuire, Sosa all exploded after 1998. And Griffey really did have an explosion too, even though he didn't get to the 60s. His prices really juiced up that year too. And I used the 2.5x multiplier on a lot of their oddball cards, especially Maguire and Sosa. And you know what? It worked. That was the most amazing thing. 
I figured out what the multiplier was of those cards before the season, what they were then. Used to set up accordingly. Sometimes they were the one card in the set that mattered. And I was amazed how well it worked with the market. That was just luck. But that was also based on some intuition. It's not luck, Rich. Basically, you're an expert. And it's the same thing the card ladder and market movers and our friends at Beckett are still doing is that you're postulating that there's a relationship there. And then you're checking the data as much as you can to see, does it hold? I still come back to the fact that where we were really successful is that we recognized where the rule generally applied and where it didn't. Because you can't just across the board algorithmically double everything because there'll be some notable, again, it might be a small percentage of the cards, but the multiples can be different for lower priced and very high priced and all that stuff. You're just very intuitive about it and you're making it seem like it was simple. It wasn't that simple. But yes, most of the cards, and that's the way dealers think. They don't think two and a half, but they think I'm going to double all the prices of this guy that's hot right now and see what happens. And what happens is the ones that really are tough still sell, and the ones that weren't that tough sit there, and then maybe they gravitate back down. I remember, and this was huge, that I saw in front of my face McGuire rookies selling that year in 98 at $300. And no, there wasn't a setup sale. I was visiting one of my friend's store when I was in New Jersey on vacation. And they were flying out the counter. I don't even know what he was paying for them, but he was getting 300 apiece for them. And they Retail. Were, they were Tiffany's. No, they were regular. They got the 200 in the price guide. And they were selling for 300 Crazy. That whole summer was pretty amazing. Surreal. Now, has there ever been a year like 1998 again? Maybe 2020, 2021, where prices just went, okay. But 98 was more two or three people-based. Capturing the American public in the chase in August and September, that was a big deal. But 2020, 2021, those prices just exploded almost like a force of nature. The man 